Well, if you would, turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. Today we start a new series in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you go to the middle of the Bible and take a right, uh, you will find it. It's Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a book with a lot of questions, with some heartbreaking answers, though true heartbreaking answers. And then some heartwarming answers to those questions, at least eventually, but not right away. It's a book about the meaning of life, according to the stuff of life. You know, the stuff of life, work, sleep, nature, possessions, achievements, pleasures, entertainment, home, wife, kids, bed, food, Legacy, purpose. As for the stuff that's in this book, well, most of us think of that stuff just about nonstop. It's what our life is made up of, and so we think about it. We have to. But as for the meaning of all that stuff, most of us don't give a whole lot of thought to the meaning of life and the meaning of the stuff in it. For most of us, we're too busy doing life to stop and think about the meaning of it. Well, here is a book in the Bible that will require us to patiently and perhaps at times painfully think a little more deeply about the deep questions of life. So over the next dozen or so weeks, we're going to work through this book of Ecclesiastes, thinking about the futility and the fulfillment of this life. This week we'll get started by simply asking the broad question, what's the point? Let's read the first 11 verses together of Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Round and round goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Well, happy Sunday to you. (laughs) Let's start on this easier theme of the preacher. Let's first consider the preacher. Let's get to know the preacher. Verse 1 says the words of the preacher. 
In Hebrew, this is the word koheleth. It means the assembler, the assembler of people. It's one addressing an assembly, so a teacher or a preacher. We're further told in verse 1, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, is who this preacher is. We're also told that in verse 12, if you want to glance down there, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And also at the end of the book, if you want to flip over to chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, we learn a little bit more about this preacher there. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight. And uprightly, he wrote words of truth. So king in Jerusalem, son of David, writer of Proverbs. That sure sounds like Solomon, doesn't it? And Solomon checks additional boxes as well. In between the first and the last chapter of Ecclesiastes, the various pursuits that this preacher has engaged in sound like Solomon. He's, a, he's gone about learning and making achievements and gaining wealth and fame and women. It looks like Solomon, but it doesn't explicitly say so, does it? It doesn't say, I, Solomon, write the following. And there are many Old Testament Hebrew scholars that point out that the language of Ecclesiastes, the syntax, the word usage, it differs in Ecclesiastes than it does, say, in Proverbs, which we think most of which have been written by Solomon. And so many scholars, conservative and liberal, think it's unlikely that Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. Personally, I lean towards Solomon writing Ecclesiastes. But since it's debated, and since it's not explicit in the text, we're just going to call him the preacher throughout our study of Ecclesiastes together. Whether it's Solomon or a Solomon-like figure doesn't really matter. Whoever this is, we can trust his experiments, his experience, and his conclusions. I'll just tell you up front, I think the preacher should be a trusted, godly sage, not a madman, nor a heathen hedonist. A trusted, godly sage, at least at the time of penning the words in Ecclesiastes. Note that there seems to be at least two different people involved in the composition of this book. There's an editor introducing the main text, and then there's the preacher. So you see in verse 1, the words of the preacher. And probably all the way to verse 11 is the editor's introduction or preface. Notice verse 12, it's now first person, I, the preacher. That's where the 12-chapter sermon begins. Throughout the book, it's I, 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 until you get to chapter 12, verse 8, no longer in first person, but back to third person, the editor puts a conclusion to the book in verse 8, in verse 9 of chapter 12. So conveniently, we have, we've been given an intro or a preface at the front end and a conclusion or an epilogue at the back end, and that helps us understand the whole. So that leads us to, secondly, his thesis. We got the preacher a little bit under our belt. Now his 
thesis. His thesis is captured in chapter 1, verse 2. The conclusion of the matter is just stated up front. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now, we know this is the thesis to the book. One, because vanity is a word found 38 times in total in this in this book of 200 verses or so. Vanity is the mantra of the book. It's the chorus. It's the hook. We also know vanity is key to the book because of the bookends of the book. You've got a beginning. You've got an end. So chapter 1, verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Well, listen to chapter 12, verse 8. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. There's his thesis. But what is vanity? It's not vanity. It's not vain like you probably think this song is about you. It means vapor. It means mist. Occasionally here in Albuquerque, it gets cold enough that you can go outside and exhale and you can see it. But it doesn't last long, does it? And so that's what vapor is like, and hence that's what your life is like. It's temporary. It's fleeting. It lacks substance. The duration is short, and it lacks significance. That's your life, and that's mine. Notice how intensely it's stated. It's vanity of vanities, like king of kings or holy of holies. A superlative. It's to the nth degree, to the utmost. This life is vanity of vanities. All is vanity. All of life for everyone. If you look down at verse 14, we'll get more into this next week, but it's worth seeing now. There we have another important phrase contributing to the preacher's thesis. All is vanity and striving after the wind or grasping after the wind. Just picture trying to grab hold of the wind and think that you have something in your hand. You don't. So this phrase speaks to the futility of life and the frustration of that futility. One other important phrase to the preacher's thesis is under the sun. It's in verse 3. It's in verse 9, and then it's about 28 more times in the book. It's massively important. We toil under the sun, verse 3 says. Verse 9, I've seen everything done under the sun. Now, that's not literal. He's not talking about working in the field in the middle of the day with the sun beating down on you. It's, it's a metaphor. But a metaphor for what? Well, many Bible teachers teach that under the sun implies a finite, limited perspective on life. Under the sun for them would mean life without God, a worldview of secularism or, or materialism. It's life lived out without knowledge of anything beyond the sun. You're simply living under the sun. Well, I would want to challenge that, even though I previously believed what I just described and even previously taught that. But I think it's better to think of under the sun not as a perspective, but as a place. 
Under the sun means this fallen world, this sin-cursed earth. That's what it means to be under the sun. And what that implies then is that under the sun, that category isn't just for unbelievers who deny God, but believers as well. They're still under the sun. Under the sun isn't just the parts of life lived out with God out of the picture. Our perspective as Christians of the things under the sun does change when we become Christians, yes. But the rules of this fallen world don't drastically change simply because we became Christians. We're not transported to a different world where the curse isn't experienced. That's coming, but not yet. So Christians can and should deal with frustrations differently than their non-Christian friends. But they don't escape frustrations and limitations and frailty and the brevity of this life. Simply put, Ecclesiastes explores life on this cursed planet. And the divinely inspired conclusion of everything under the sun is vanity of vanities, emptiness, vaporness. Everything is a mist. How did the preacher come to that strong and strongly worded opinion? Thirdly, his observations. Verses 3 to 11 give us several observations. Let me suggest five different categories of observations that the preacher makes. One would be useless toil in verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? It's a rhetorical question. He assumes that you know, humanly speaking, that the toil in this life is not equal to the gains of this life. The gain that you get is not the sum total of all your toil. Your gain is less than your toil. And if you want to dispute that with the preacher, remember that it's right in the curse of Genesis 3. There are thorns and thistles in that ground. Work is cursed. Work is not evil, but work is cursed. We know the toil of this life does not produce its equivalent gains. I always say, no house project is really started until you've had two trips to Lowe's. <laughs> not one. You think it's one, and then the curse comes calling and reminding you, you got the wrong one, you forgot this thing, and back you go to Lowe's. Another observation, endless cycles. This one goes on for several verses. The biggest and most important of these cycles is life and death. Generations after generation. Verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. 
Don't forget Genesis 3. God warned Adam and Eve, the day you eat of the tree, you'll surely die. They ate of the tree. They began to die. Eventually they died. Two short chapters later in the Bible, and we have a humanity big enough to warrant a genealogy, a listing of names, and we have this haunting chorus in between each name, and he died. So-and-so lived so many years, and he died. And then so-and-so lived so many years, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, just as God said. Or James chapter 4, James says, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. I'm 43 years old. I feel like I'm middle-aged. I kind of am. I bet, you know, it's debatable. Will I get to 90 or not? I don't know, probably not. So I'm, I'm in the back nine. Life is short. I was a toddler. I blinked. I'm 43. It's weird. In those of you who are in your 60s and 70s and 80s, you say, oh, you're a spring chicken, 43. I'd love to be 43. Just you wait and see. <laughs> we know what's coming, not just old age, death. And don't forget that death isn't natural. It's not the way it once was. It's not the way God first made it when he said, behold, it's all very good. Death is the result of the sin in this world and the curse that God has put on it. Period. More than that can be said, especially for the Christian, but we need not rush to hope just yet. We need to let Ecclesiastes do its work and its painful work. And for that matter, it's not Ecclesiastes alone. Listen to how Moses in Psalm 90 pondered life and death under the curse. He prayed, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80 Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. And that's what's been happening ever since Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the garden. Over and over and over and over again, generation after generation. Whether you think the earth is 10,000 years old or 4.5 billion years old, there have been a lot of people dying for a really long time. And it's not stopping. It's just like the sun, verse 5. The sun rises and the sun goes down. A sunset can be beautiful. The sunrise can be a great reminder of God's mercies, Lamentations 3 says. But don't get there too quickly. Let the relentless monotony of sunrise, sunset, 
itch for just a bit. Let it get under your skin. Oh, I know, you're happy that it's morning. Oh, it's nice to go to bed. Yes, but it just keeps coming and coming and coming, and it won't stop. It's like this metronome. That's how death is. That's how every day is. Remember uh, in the movie Groundhog Day, when Bill Murray stuck in the same day, day after day, he says to his new friends in the bowling alley, Guys, what if every day was exactly the same and nothing you did mattered? And one of them replies, well, that about sums it up for me. (laughs) You don't have to be stuck in Groundhog Day to feel like every day is the same, like the cycles of life just keep going and going, just like the wind, verse 6. The wind blows to the south, then the wind blows to the north. It just keeps going. Where does it go? How come it hasn't run out yet? What if we can get hold of the giant fan at the front end of this thing? No, it just keeps going around and around and around. It's like the water, verse 7. All streams run to the sea, but the sea isn't full. With all the tributaries going into all the rivers and all the rivers going into the ocean, how come the ocean isn't overflowing? Well, it's because of something called the water cycle. Remember that? Evaporation and then precipitation in a new location. We actually have a trillion gallons. Is that right? A trillion tons. That's what it is. A trillion tons of water a day evaporated from the Earth's water. That's crazy. It just keeps going. It's the same water. God doesn't have to occasionally, like your hot tub or pool, occasionally put a hose to it and fill it up a little bit more. It just keeps going round and round and round, and it won't stop. So it is with the wind, so it is with the sun, so it is with life and death and with generations and generations to come. So it is with your life lived out day by day. Endless cycles. Dishes are clean, then they're not clean. Then they're clean, so you got to put them away. You pull weeds in your yard, and that's good, but they will come back. We have a saying, another day, another dollar. Hopefully you get more than a dollar for a day's work, day's worth of work, but we know what the saying means. A weekend comes, a weekend goes, and then it's Monday. That's what my kids say, oh, it's Monday. And then we try to cheer up. (laughs) Another observation here. Indescribable, indescribable dissatisfaction. Verse 8. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. All of us have an insatiable appetite for satisfaction. We don't all agree the same things are satisfying, but we all have an insatiable appetite for satisfaction. The Rolling Stones saying, I can't get no satisfaction, but I try, and I try, and I try. The Stones were no theologians, but they were experienced practitioners. They were professional at sex, drugs, and rock and roll. 
And that might not be your cup of tea, but it was their cup of tea, and they say that cup of tea, it runs dry. Eventually, it's empty, no matter how much you try and try and try. In the mid-1960s, Simon and Garfunkel were beginning to be a big thing. They were in high demand. They were successful musicians. They had every reason, humanly speaking, to be going around the country and really all over the world singing Feeling Groovy, a song they wrote in 1965. But in that same year, they went into the studio and recorded another song with a somber tone. I'm sitting in the railway station, got a ticket for my destination, on a tour of one-night stands with my suitcase and guitar in hand. Every stop is neatly planned for a poet in a one-man band. Homeward bound. I wish I was homeward bound. Every day is an endless stream of cigarettes and magazines, each town looks the same to me, the movies and the factories. And every stranger's face I see reminds me that I long to be homeward bound. Tonight I'll sing my songs again. I'll play the game and pretend. But all the words come back to me in shades of mediocrity. Like emptiness in harmony, I need someone to comfort me. Homeward bound, I wish I was homeward bound. What was at home, Paul Simon? Well, for the life of me, with about 20 minutes of research, not much. I can't tell what was home for Paul in the mid-60s. He didn't have a happy home growing up. He didn't have a home to go to. In the mid-60s, not, 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 not a people, not, not a place, not, not, not a wife, not kids, not mom and dad. And we get that for Paul Simon, apparently. The road wasn't home, and he longed for something else, even if imagined or ideal. And yet the road signified all his great musical success. He's, he's a divided man, as all of us are. Augustine said, our hearts are restless. Ecclesiastes says, the eye isn't satisfied. The ear never gets full. I checked this morning. I have 8,500 songs or sermons in my iTunes. I also have Amazon Prime music, all that free music that comes with an Amazon, Amazon Prime membership. And yet I recently told a friend, I'm in a musical slump right now. I don't got anything good. I don't have anything I'm newly excited about, you know? And the same goes with movies and TV shows. I don't have anything right now that I'm into. My wife and I occasionally have something we're into. You know, we sneak away when the kids go to bed and we find out what happened and you keep working through it and, and then you finish it. And even then, then what? You know, you just finished the series. Oh, can you believe that happened? Can you believe she did that? Yeah, now what? Are we improved? Am I a changed person? Am I filled up? Does my eye say 
full, no more? Does my ear say, oh, we have all the music and cinematic drama in our ears than we could ever take? Now, whether it's entertainment or possessions or gadgets or clothes or homes or relationships, we want another. We want more. We want better. We want the newer. We want another one. You take food as a sorry example. If you eat a $50 meal rather than fast food, can you go two days without eating? It seems like that would be the case, right? It would seem like that's the economics. But economics like that don't apply to our food. Every meal I've had, whether fast food or a fancy steak, has wound up in the same place. (laughs) And there's no end in sight. Fourth, nothing is new, verses 9 and 10. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? And I can imagine someone inserting right here, yes, of course. There's all kinds of new things. I mean, haven't you seen that little logo they put on new things with the, the, the red star? It says new. Sometimes new and improved people will advertise their products as. You might say, the iPhone's new. The iPhone 10 is the newest iPhone. Or you could just take the iPhone in general and you say, the iPhone's a new thing. There was a pre-iPhone era and then there's the post-iPhone era. That's new. Yeah, but what is an iPhone? It's communication, information, and entertainment. And those things are as old as the hills. And finding new ways to capture information, to do communication, to have entertainment, that's as old as the hills, finding new ways. There was a time when the rotary phone was the amazing new thing, and you didn't have to walk two miles down to John's house to say hi. This, too, is vanity and chasing after the wind. Someone might say, X Games. What about X Games? It's always something new. That's the name of the game for X Games, new tricks. Yeah, but that idea of doing new tricks is as old as, as the first guy who ever said to his buddy, watch this. That's how old it is. And I'm sure it was Cain and Abel before Cain killed Abel. One day in the field, one of them said, watch this. You see, let let the preacher of Ecclesiastes lead you by the hand. Trust him. Nothing is new. It's the same old, same old in this sin-curse world. Yes, there is a time to talk about unique challenges posed in our day, like smartphones or, or social media. But this isn't the time for that. The preacher says, let it sink in deep how timeless and pervasive are things like gossip and self-focus and self-promotion and lust and greed and jealousy and coveting and distractingness distractions and bullying and murder and wars and threats 
and fears and lowliness. These are in Genesis, not on social media, not just on social media. A fifth observation, nothing lasts. Verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things. Or it could be later people, later former people, later people. It doesn't matter whether it's people or things. No thing lasts, no person lasts. A few people go down in history, literally. They go down in history. Probably no one in this room will go down in history. Feel that. Your great-great-grandchildren will likely not remember your name unless they get into Ancestry.com. Even with people who do go down in history, what's the point? They still die. They still are buried next to the nobody. I did my doctoral dissertation on a 17th century English theologian. And at one point in writing my dissertation, I had the thought, what a weird thing I'm doing. I am squabbling with historians and theologians about what a 300-year-old guy said, what he did, and that I'm arguing he thought X and not Y, and they thought Y and not X. <sighs> what a weird way to honor his legacy. A hundred or so dissertations and books have been written about him squabbling about whether, whether he thought X or Y. You think of another 17th century figure, Oliver Cromwell, who was once called the most powerful man in the world. He was integral to a revolution in Great Britain. But within a decade, that revolution was dismantled with devastating effects. Then Cromwell got sick and died. Well, at least there's still that statue of him outside of Westminster Abbey for the pigeons to poop on <laughs> and for the 20-somethings to walk by and point at and ask, who's that bloke on the horse? It's all striving after the wind in this cursed earth. You depressed yet? If so, good. That's the preacher's point. It's the curse. It's the curse, stupid. So go ahead and nearly feel suffocated by futility and frustration. Everything from long stoplights to plumbing leaks to cancer to to joblessness, to the relentless monotony of a stay-at-home mom or the constant frustration of a grade school teacher who has a bad batch of kids this year. Everything's broken. Bob Dylan saying this, broken lines, broken strings, broken threads, and broken springs, 
broken idols, broken heads, people sleeping in broken beds. Ain't no use jiving, ain't no use joking, everything's broken. Broken bottles, broken plates, broken switches, broken gates, broken dishes, broken parts, streets filled with broken hearts. Seems like every time you stop and turn around, something else just hit the ground. Broken gutters, broken saws, broken buckles, broken laws, broken bodies, broken bones, broken voices on broken phones. Take a deep breath. Feel like you're choking. Everything is broken. The curse is that pervasive, that powerful, that painful, and that permanent. Verse 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight. You can't fix the curse. You can't conquer the curse. You can't outsmart the curse. You can't win over the curse. You can't ignore this curse. You can't pretend like the curse is really good stuff. You can't distract yourself from this curse, not ultimately. Lastly, what's his point? Fourth, his point? What is the point? What's the point of life? What's, what's the preacher's point? Well, let me suggest a practical point and a theological point. Neither of which are right here in the first 11 verses of Ecclesiastes. The answer isn't yet to be found. We have to zoom out on the whole of Scripture to get his point which will be more clearly established in the book later on. Here's a practical point. A painfully honest outlook on life, it, it buffers prideful optimism. So I just hinted at this. You can't make it work. You can't make it in this life with this curse as reality. And even if you thought you could, and even if you concluded that you did, you wouldn't be satisfied. Not according to Ecclesiastes. Not according to experience either. It buffers prideful optimism, and it also buffers bitter disappointment. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised that this is a broken world. That things don't work. Don't be surprised by wars. Don't be surprised by death. Don't be surprised by extra trips to Lowe's. Don't be surprised by the tyranny of the monotony. A painfully honest outlook on life via Ecclesiastes buffers. It softens. It takes the edge off prideful optimism and bitter disappointment. But then there's a theological point to make, part of which I've already made. That Ecclesiastes 1 illustrates to us and proves to us the painful, pervasive effects of the curse. It's expounding what are just in a few verses in Genesis 3. That we do live in a rough and tumble world. And the sooner we own up to that, the sooner we can see beyond thorns and thistles. This sin-cursed world, though, is still our Father's world. In fact, this curse is his 
curse. It's his doing. Let that soak in. All the brokenness. We could blame on people, yes. But we could say God's behind it, he's in it, and we can trust him for it. It's scary out there, but you can trust him. And further, cursed is not his final word. It's still a relevant one living in this world, but it is not the final one. Death is a powerful word and a powerful reality, but it is not the final word. So turn to Romans 8, where we can go for some hope. Romans 8, as I wrap this up. Romans 8 deals with life, death, the curse, and more than the curse. Romans 8, verse 20, there Paul writes, For the creation was subjected to futility, vanity, emptiness, vaporness. Not willingly. The creation didn't seek this out. It didn't do it. But because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that now the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, every human being, we Christians who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we too, we've been groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Saved. Hope from groaning to full redemption, from bondage to freedom. How? Well, the curse was so pervasive and so powerful and so unfixable by us, we needed someone not under it, someone above it, someone not under the sun but from beyond to come from the outside, to come into the cursed world that we live in, to come under the sun and under the curse, to experience it all, though not sinning himself, but experiencing the effects of sin in our world in order to bear our guilt and our shame, to be our righteousness, to be the fix. That's why he lived righteously. That's why he died sacrificially. That's why he rose victoriously and now lives forevermore. It's to defeat Satan and sin and guilt and the curse. I've seen the end. Well, I didn't see it, but John did, and he told us about it in Revelation and he said, in the end, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things 
under the sun. They've passed away. Jesus says, behold, I am making all things new. So even now, in Christ, every Christian can have a foretaste of a new world to come. One not under a curse. We're people of two different realms. And one day, one realm, the new one, will totally eclipse the other old corrupt one. And so we have hope. We have great hope. And yet we're waiting. We have the Spirit as a down payment, so we know it's as good as done. We will have the full redemption and salvation of our souls and our bodies. That's coming. But we're not stupid while we wait. With eyes wide open, we wait. Thorns and thistles still prick. This world has been subjected to futility. It does groan, though it groans in hope. And so we groan, and we groan in hope. If you're not a Christian, I close just by asking you, what is it you're hoping in? What are you waiting for? What are you looking to? What do you think's wrong with this world? Are you trying to just deny and pretend that it's not as bad as it really is? Are you thinking that eventually technology will win out and there'll be this utopia? You think the iPhone 11's gonna do it? Is that it? Is that what you're waiting for? Or the next president? Or this one? I don't hold your breath. Are you fully aware of how bad it is and you're just gonna entertain yourself to death. You're just going to ignore it as best you can. So keep your face on the screen. Keep, keep it coming. Keep, keep the noise going so you don't have to think. Maybe you're to the point of giving up. I mean, life has been hard. It seems like it's easier for other people. I'm not sure exactly what they did, but I think I did as best as I possibly could, and I... I'm at the end. Well, that's not the answer either. There's great hope. We wait, yes, but we wait in hope. This is why Jesus came. And so we go to God. And what Ecclesiastes will show us is that if we're right with God, then food isn't stupid. It's awesome. And kids aren't just a short enjoyment slash short trial until they're out of the house. They're awesome. If we're right with God, everything's different. Amen. Let's pray for eyes to see like that. Lord, help us. We need you to give eyes to some in here who have never really seen Jesus at all or even really seen their own sin. We pray you'd help them to see. Oh, Lord, we pray... That as Christians, we would walk about this world with eyes wide open, not surprised about anything. And that doesn't mean minimizing the pain living in this fallen world. Fully 
awoken to it. But looking beyond, Lord, we thank you for Jesus, for his coming, for his living, for his dying, for his resurrection, for his new creation. We thank you for hope beyond the grave and even beyond this world. Increase that hope for your namesake and glory, we pray. Amen.